Welcome to Obey Your Strengths with Gallup Certified Strengths Coach, Kathy Kirsten. Our guest today is Simon Cooper, the former president of the Ritz-Carlton Hotel Company. Under his management, the Ritz-Carlton doubled in size, and he has left a leadership legacy like no other. I'm thrilled to talk to him, Mr. Simon Cooper. Thank you very much. Pleasure to be with you all today. I am thrilled to talk to you today. Those of us strengths fans, if we've read Strengths-Based Leadership, we already know a little bit about Simon because he is highlighted in the book by Tom Rath and Barry Conchie, and we know about his top five strengths, and we know how he brought them to life in his leadership skills. And I'm just thrilled, Simon, that you are here with us today to bring those to life. You know, those pages uh, in that book were very inspiring, but I want to know the how of how you did what you did at Ritz-Carlton. And then I also want to catch up on what you've been doing since you left the Ritz and Marriott. Wonderful. Yes. Okay, fantastic. Well, let's get into it. Simon, I know because I have my book in my hands that your top five are Maximizer, Woo, Arranger, Activator, and Significance. Simon, tell me, how do these strengths manifest themselves in you? You can go one by one or kind of sum them all up if you'd like, whatever you'd like to do. Well, I'm glad you didn't want me to start at the bottom with my worst. (laughs) (laughs) No, we wouldn't do that Um, on Obey Your Strengths. (laughs) I know. It's interesting because when I brought this home to my wife when I first did it, she said I could have saved you a lot of money and I could have told you all that. (laughs) (laughs) So they were a good characterization of your strengths? It really is. Uh, it's amazing what the strengths finder can deliver. Uh, you know, a twenty-minute online—it's just amazing. So, maximizer is, as you probably are well aware, something you're going to find in a lot of a top five of a lot of effective leaders. And I don't pretend for one second that I am. I just happen to have it up there. And it basically is about wanting to make things better every day. But the way that manifested itself at Ritz-Carlton was I took over a company from an iconic leader, uh, deeply loved, doing a fantastic job, uh, a very strong brand recognition, uh, meeting all of the growth uh, goals of the company, meeting the expectations or surpassing the expectations of guests, yet... For me, I knew that that we had to stay contemporary. The change would have to continue to occur on my watch, that you couldn't be static. And so a maximizer takes a platform that exists, in my opinion, and just looks at how can I continue to make it better? How can I continue to make it more relevant? How can I be smart enough to anticipate consumer changes uh, or business changes or technology changes that are going to have uh, a meaningful impact. So it's partly about always seeking to do better, but in that search for doing better, you're also trying to look to the future and anticipate things that are going to meaningfully impact your business. The woo is, sometimes I'm not a fan that it's up there, but on the other hand, you've got to be able to persuade people, persuade teams of people, that your vision of where the company uh, should be going or where they individually should be going is is right. And it's partly giving them confidence, but in the process, it's this sort of 
engaging with them. I'm not, I really don't like the word woo, but it's all about, I guess, explaining to people your vision and getting that buy-in. Because if you don't have that buy-in for whatever strategy you're trying to execute, it's probably going to fail unless it's a technology strategy. But if it's a people strategy where you need people to execute your vision or on any kind of issue, if they don't buy in, then I would, I would argue it's, it's not going to be successful. So as you go down the sort of list, a ranger, a relatively obvious activator, significance is, is always a little bit of an awkward one too because it's more about you as the individual wanting to make a difference. And from the positive side, I like it. I wouldn't want to think that it was a, it drove doing things that might not have been right because might have been significant only to me or to other people. So it's this idea that you, you actually do want to make a difference. And when you, when you eventually croak, <laughs> you'd like that, but people talk about you for four or five minutes and talk about you in positive terms because you have had a, a positive impact. That would be my quick run through. I don't want to get too worried away on it, but I'll tell you my worst is consistency, by the way. If you <laughs> really? want to know what the worst is, it's consistency. Oh, <laughs> well, that's okay. I'll, I'll be full disclosure too. My number 34 is empathy, which, <laughs> boo. <laughs> I guess I don't have much empathy. <laughs> well, well, we'll find out during this call. We certainly will. Hey, you know what? They won't be able to tell. You've got woo. I've got woo. We're going to woo it up. <laughs> Good. Excellent. Oh, Simon, whenever I was reading through how I knew that I wanted to talk to you, and I hope that I don't. Well, I can't see you because you're in Washington, D.C. or outside of Washington, D.C. And I'm in San Antonio. And we're on the phone together. But I hope I don't make you blush. But there is this part of this book, Strength-Based Leadership. There's this quote about you that I want to read, and I think it shows your significance. So what? just what you spoke about, I think this sums it up perfectly. So this is uh, off of page 46 out of Strength-Based Leadership, and this is the reason I knew I had to talk to you. It says, they're talking about Simon's significant influence at the Ritz-Carlton. It says, his influence is not just about maximizing one of the world's greatest brands, nor is it about doubling the total number of Ritz-Carlton properties in a mere seven years. It's not just about the records he set in profits, quality, or employee and customer engagement. Rather, Simon Cooper's talent for influencing serves the greater purpose of running an organization upon which the well-being of more than 40,000 families depend. As Cooper described, how the paycheck of one of his frontline employees in Asia often subsidizes the food and shelter for an entire family. You could hear his significance theme resonate. Then when he talked out of the night and day difference that a job at Ritz-Carlton could make for a housekeeper in the Persian Gulf, you get the sense that this is one man who realizes that he can change the world, even if that means influencing one person at a time. Whoo, that's powerful. And inspiring. So that's what I want to talk to you about. Help us through this conversation, Simon. Keep in mind, a lot of my audience members are startups, entrepreneurs, or people who are on their strengths journey already, trying to lead or evangelize strengths within their organizations, their teams, sometimes their families, and getting that, changing the world one person at a time. Do you remember that quote, by the way? Do you remember that page? I certainly do. <laughs> I 
I would love to have that written about me at the end of my career, I'll be honest. <laughs> Let's talk about it. So take me back to your Ritz-Carlton days. When you took over as president, you were le- there was already a very successful brand. And like you said, you had to maximize it to make it current. You know, what were some of the other challenges you were facing as you took on the held of this organization? One of the challenges, one of the most significant challenges was that Ritz-Carlton, as you may or may not know, it has a very structured approach to the culture of the company to the extent that they have the famous credo card. And the credo card, as the, as the motto of the company, it has, in those days, it had uh, 12 steps of service. It had all sorts of, and very, you know, ladies and gentlemen serving, ladies and gentlemen. I mean, and this, this little card was in the back, is still in the back pocket of every Ritz Carlton employee, translated all over the world. So you had a culture that was extremely strong. You had a very successful company in every measurement you could ask for. And you had employees who we would continually and rightfully tell them what an incredible job they were doing and how they were contributing to the success of the company. And that was in lineups every single day. And we would focus on a different item from the credo card every single day, mandated throughout the world. So you had this this culture where there was a tremendously strong belief that the success of the company rested upon a a culture, and that culture was embodied in the credo card. The challenge I had as I I took over really didn't sort of manifest itself for until a couple of years, partly because I saw no reason to change the direction of the company, and the last thing I wanted to be was a a leader who came in and, and immediately tried to change things. There was no no reason to change. It was, it was much better, in my humble opinion, to listen hard, travel broadly, understand the individual assets the countries are operating in, and then step back and, and sort of come up for air. And at that time, we did a lot of research about our brand. And while we were incredibly popular brand, very well-respected, on the continuum of traditional versus contemporary, we stuck out on, on one end. We were on the traditional end. And this dates back to a lot of the Ritz-Carlton hotels having been built in uh, late 70s, early 80s, uh, the Naples, Laguna Gel, Buckhead. And they were built with uh, very heavy, heavy millwork, mm-hmm. um, a lot of white marble, a lot of. Uh, your dead relatives hanging on the wall, a sort of very English house kind of look. And that was appreciated by a a good segment of our guests, but it was also a segment that was getting much older. And uh, I felt, and I think we all collectively felt, that we couldn't, we had to move off that traditional end. We had to get into the middle somehow. Mm -hmm. Because that end, Really, we were going to be losing, uh, we were going to get less relevant to the future luxury consumer of tomorrow. That was 03, we began that. And that was set out at that time as a 10 year journey because trying to change how consumers feel about a brand is extremely time consuming, extremely difficult. But aligned with that change, so as we did the change 
which is more easily explained in terms of what the hotel looked like. Right. And getting rid of the wood, getting rid of the white marble, et cetera. So you could change the look of a hotel. But we had this underlying culture, which was also very prescriptive. And uh, there was one page, which is basically the sort of the to-dos for every employee. You know, answer the phone in three rings. It was very prescriptive. And that, in my humble opinion, was not going to assist us uh, with this new consumer uh, or, or with the luxury consumers as they were developing, becoming more sophisticated. It's much more about experiences and, and less about these, these very prescriptive things that, that an employee has to do, including you know, putting words in their mouths like it's my pleasure, which is great as long as you mean it. It's great as long until you hear it 10 times within the first five minutes. It's great until you hear it at Walmart because they train their people. So it became very rote and very prescriptive. And we were entering a world where I wanted our ladies and gentlemen to live a set of values and not a set of directives. So the whole idea was to focus on what's the outcome that we want from your interaction with the guest. So we came, I mean, we developed 12 values, which was all about what are we as Ritz-Carlton and Ritz-Carlton employees, Ritz-Carlton ladies and gentlemen, what are our values? And we basically, uh, it was interesting because uh, the, the credo card was sort of the Bible. And it had, it was so much linkage to the success of the company. But it was interesting. Once I went out, I did a lot of workshops around the world because just to change it for the sake of changing, if, if it wasn't something that was going to be broadly understood. But I remember it was really interesting. Internationally, it was actually easier to change than it probably was uh, in North America. And the employees got the idea that they are professionals. We, we tell them, you're professionals. The idea that they could now be more flexible in how they interacted with guests and had to actually think about it. You know, there was, there was no longer the sort of, you do this, you do that, three steps here, two steps there. They actually had to think about it. So I'll give you an example, which probably highlights it. Okay. If you serve a room service dinner at a Ritz in 2006, there were 53 steps that you had to take to serve a dinner. Wow. Now, if, if you arrived in the, in, the, in the room or the suite of the guest with the, uh, with the room service uh, trolley and everything, if the couple was sitting on the terrace overlooking the Bosphorus, you'd do all 53 steps and probably another 53 steps because this for them was their, their event of their whole trip, sitting on the terrace of Baritz having a romantic dinner. Do 53 steps and do another 10, go down and get a cake or something. But if you entered that room the next day and there was a, a business person, male or female, sitting at the desk on the phone, you would be very quietly whoosh in, show them where to sign the bill, and get the hell out. Mm -hmm. So now you can expand that to things like families and making the right decisions as to how you take care of families, especially after long journeys and the, the kids aren't happy and the parents have had enough. It's, it's, it's really trying to understand the consumer whom you're serving, no matter where in the hotel, no matter how, no matter what, and understanding them and their needs and not necessarily living by some playbook that we've given you. 
So that's uh, probably a bit of a long-winded answer, but in, in, in creating that change and shifting from a very prescriptive way of doing things to giving our, globally, our ladies and gentlemen, values that represented the outcomes that we were looking for uh, really uh, w was a very meaningful change. And it added to this, this whole idea of trying to make the hotels more contemporary. So they're less formal, they're less uh, traditional in look, and they're less prescriptive in terms of service. So it's much more about intuitive service and, and how that links to the fact that you're trying to now make your, your, the look of your hotels and the feel of the chain or the feel of the company uh, much more contemporary. And it creates customer loyalty, doesn't it? Absolutely. Yeah, I mean, at the end of the day, uh, <clears throat> we obviously strive for customer engagement. Uh, when I first started at Ritz, we had customer satisfaction scores, which were all 98 and above. So it, it really, <laughs> you know. <laughs> That's world class. That is world class. <laughs> well, yeah, but it, it doesn't tell you anything. Now, if you shift to customer loyalty, we only spent about a year on loyalty, which was you know, as a result of that really great, as a result of satisfying me, how loyal am I? And then we shifted very quickly a year later into customer engagement. The key question now in Ritz-Carlton, well, was in Ritz-Carlton when we changed is, I cannot imagine a world without Ritz-Carlton. So that was the number one measure that we used in terms of incentives for hotels was the answer to that question. And I can't imagine a world without Ritz-Carlton. So that is a pretty tough question for somebody to say yes. Absolutely. That's a, that's a challenging one <laughs> to, to have really high scores on that. That's, that is a world-class vision style of a question. Yeah, we probably got up in the 60s, except in Japan, because the Japanese just couldn't actually do that. <laughs> mm -hmm. Japanese mentality, they just can't. <laughs> There's very much all the scores in Japan, quite rightly, because they 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 are they they can't imagine that that things couldn't actually be better. I think there must be a whole land of maximizers because they always think there's something better. <laughs> I'm wearing my maximizer T-shirt today, by the way, Simon. So I'm in ah. there with you. So I mean, I've I've got maximizer number five. Sometimes it's at number one. So this all resonates with me. But let me tell you how. Just as you're telling this story. I'm realizing just how much of an influence the culture you were building at the Ritz-Carlton was influencing the culture that I was working in in those same years at Rackspace Hosting. We actually had a vision that said Ritz-Carlton in the statement. We will be known as a world-class customer service provider to the tune of Ritz-Carlton, and we named a couple of other luxury brands to help our wreckers see the vision of what we were trying to build. And what I can see that you were having this transition challenge of going from prescriptive to values-based, we had the opportunity because we were a young company in the technology space. We didn't have to transition anything. We just had to make sure we were hiring the right talent who would give that customer delight type of experience. And, and you know, I'm even thinking 
when we would have customers who would maybe experience a hard drive failure and the t- their tech team and some of our system administrators would be on the phone for hours and how account managers were empowered to order pizza, you know, Google out, you know, where is this person, our customers in New Jersey, Google up the closest pizza hut, ship over five pizzas because they've been at this work trying to get their website back up for at least eight hours now. They've got to be hungry. And then, you know, we tell them, hey, in a minute, you're going to get a delivery from Pizza Hut. We're buying you dinner. And they were astonished that we would do that. And so it this resonates. And, and we know, I mean, lots of Rackspace employees went to the Ritz-Carlton Leadership Institute to learn about these ways. But, you know, we were doing it from scratch, like as this is a basic of how we're building our business. You were transforming into this more uh, values driven. But there is a, a, a an, an aspect here of selecting talent. Tell me about how you, what did you put into your toolkit in hiring talent who would give great customer service? Well, the first thing, obviously, the you're looking for employees, ladies and gentlemen, who are suited. So, you know, empathy, which you talked about before, uh, is obviously one of the key things you you look for, and you know, and it's, but it's not just about empathy. If you think about the sort of the the employees in a hotel, the interaction with a guest takes place between the guests and the lowest paid employees. That's just the reality of the hotel business. It's the reality of the hospital business. It's the reality of of any service business, in my opinion. It's the frontline employee who is day in, day out, frequently with um, doing a very repetitive job. It is those employees who uh, are the key, obviously, to your uh, to the success. So when you're recruiting, it, it's, I'll give you an example. I'm, uh, I was down in, uh, in in a certain island yesterday in the Caribbean, which you know where it was. Mm-hmm. But we're building a brand new uh, destination. New hotel, new everything, and there's, a, there's probably 40, 50 hotels on the island. Tourism is uh, certainly a major business down there, and it's interesting. the the uh, The group that I'm working with, we all agree the last thing we're going to do is hire anybody who's in the hotel industry down there, <laughs> because you're you're hiring people who, you know, who will probably have a set way as to how they go about. Uh, that guest interaction, and what you want is people who have that that raw, that sort of raw material, that attitude. Uh, and so, attitude is is number one because you can with people with the right attitude. Our business is not rocket science, uh, it, and it's low tech, high touch. Attitude is way more important than knowledge or skill or experience, except when you're talking the culinary in the kitchen. So. You know that's that's the that's where you start. You start with people with a wonderful attitude, unless you are a poor leader, or you give them a poor platform. That means you know you don't give them the tools or, or that they need to be successful. People want to work. People want to be successful. They want to be part of a successful business. Uh, they want to be part of a winning team. I think ninety nine percent of people are like that, and it's it's up to leaders. To create the environment, both hard environment, by that I mean, you know, your building, and soft environment, the 
which is the culture. You've, it up to leaders to create those two really important uh, platforms, hard and soft, as I call it, for uh, employees to, to to blossom in. And I think everybody wants to blossom. I, everybody wants to be successful. Absolutely. I agree with you 100%. We all do. And it's about finding that right seat on the bus to be successful in, which a lot of us, that's why, hey, if you're listening to Obey Your Strengths, hopefully you're learning what your right seat is um, as individuals, but as leaders, you know, filling our our organizations with people who are talented and have the right attitude to do their job well at the best of their ability. In our previous conversations, Simon, you actually give credit to your career success. You shared with me that it's anchored your career success is your ability to select and develop leaders. Can we talk about your leadership team and maybe not specifics about people, but what kind of partners did you have and what kind of leadership and trust did you build with your leadership team? You know, trust is vital. You mentioned the key word there, right? You know, whatever qualities a leader has, whatever skills sets their strengths are and strengths find us, it doesn't matter if your team doesn't trust you. And this is back to an earlier point I made, you know, when you're trying to lead people to execute a strategy for a company or a business or an organization, if there's no trust or if there's a lack of trust, that is a huge uh, stumbling block uh, to success. But, you know, I mean, I think, you know, when it comes to leaders and, and choosing leaders, to me, there's a couple of absolute keys. One is, and I, everybody talks about it, but I think it's so true and it's, I think it's fundamental. You want diversity in the team. And, and more importantly, you want diversity of thinking. Uh, it's nice to have diversity broadly, but at the end of the day, diversity of thinking to me is the most important because you don't you don't want people to think like you, and it's not a question of being dis- disrespectful. I think it was McKinsey when they began. I think their slogan was "Dissent is a given." In other words, if you f- feel differently, you are supposed to dissent and do it politely, but put out your opinion. Like it's really important that any team that you build and create, uh, you need diversity of thinking. And that often comes anyway, certainly in global companies. And, and, and I was fortunate to really operate in a global company. So that often that comes uh, just with the nature of, of uh, finding the best talent in different parts of the world. And it's really important that a leader take a lot of time in the selection process. Because with things like StrengthsFinders and other tools today, there really shouldn't be many secrets about an individual before you hire them. And I think it's really important to take time, not only evaluating the individual and their strengths, but it's just as important as evaluating the job that you want to put the people into. Because like everything else, if I have strengths, I have weaknesses. I, I try to be smart enough, as should, in, as should people you know, looking for, for opportunities, you try to be smart enough to analyze the opportunity that you're being given and whether that is matches your strengths. And vice versa, I expect leaders, when they're hiring people, be going through that process of trying to make sure. Because that's what is going to create the long-term success for the company. You hire an individual who's a perfect fit for the job you've got, you put them in the job, you then nurture them, and to me, it is really, really important uh, that leaders nurture future talent. 
that to me, I mean, as I got longer in my career and, and before I retired, I always felt in the last five years in Asia running all of Marriott's businesses in Asia and the Ritzes and the, every single brand we had. I felt my ultimate responsibility to Marriott was to develop the, the best possible team. And it had, it had been a, it was a five-year stint. Marriott decided to change the way they ran the world. So they created these CEO positions. So we had to hire all of the, the disciplines into our head office in Hong Kong and Asia. So we were pulling uh, accountability out of uh, Marriott headquarters. We were pulling risk. We were pulling strategy. And at the same time, we were hiring a complete leadership team for Asia. And so I think it really, really important is for a leader um, I always felt was was developing people. So it was whether retiring uh, and and they, my eleven members of my leadership team, all of whom are still with Marriott, most have had promotions, or whether it was my early years. Always, you know, every department I had, I was always trying to uh, develop my people. Now it wasn't solely because I was a good guy. <laughs> It's a very practical element to this. Uh, everybody I ever hired later on in life in a senior position, they always used to joke because the first thing I tell them to do is find your replacement. <laughs> and uh, that was nothing more than as soon as you basically start you know, any kind of leadership position, I think it's incumbent upon you to start thinking about who's going to replace me. And that has real benefits uh, to an organization because it also makes it much easier for, uh, for a leader to replace an individual because they've already developed somebody in their department. So this idea of, of developing careers and developing people that you hire uh, into long-term assets for the company that you work for, I think is really, really important. As you say that, I'm realizing that's how people like yourself, you know, people that are that have a leadership legacy um, are creating that depth, that sustainability of success, even long after you're gone, is by pouring into the people around you and helping them be successful sustainably. I mean, I, I can take it away from me, but I'll put one of the hotels that I, I work for the ownership group. We put money into the, we made a very meaningful investment into the hotel to reposition it. And because it had lacked investment for about three years, it didn't have the best leadership team. And it's a very simple reason. Um, smart leaders go where they believe that they're going to have both the financial and, and uh, support to be able to create the kind of hotel that is going to be a legacy for them and move their careers within the management company that they work for. Uh, we put in $35 million, repositioned the hotel, hired a new general manager from the company, uh, who was a was a wonderful individual who develops his people and um, has no problem hiring uh, new leaders when he has uh, you know internal company turnover because it's a place that people want to work because their careers will be enhanced by working here not only just for the GM but also because the hotel uh, is so well perceived so that is. Um, and, and people follow that, and it, it's 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 a hard one sometimes to describe, uh, but there is a reality that smart, career-focused, ambitious people who, you know, really 
look at their career very seriously. You know, look at opportunities that will enable that advancement. And it's working for Joe so-and-so over there, or everybody who's ever worked for him, the number twos, the number threes, they all got general manager right away, or working for Ann over here. So you get, certainly within Ritz, we had uh, uh, hotels that were continue to pump out fantastic leaders. Uh, Singapore was a fantastic place for pumping out very capable leaders that we then used other areas around Asia, partly because Singapore, they're really well-educated. A lot of them speak Chinese. So Turkey was another one. Istanbul, a huge resource. Again, well-educated, people who want to travel, get to know the world. So you, you, there is no doubt that there is a sort of a magnet uh, around certain uh, organizations with certain leaders that have an innate ability to develop other leaders for the organization. And what's interesting is, as a result of that, they actually get the best leaders in their hotels. Uh, earlier, you talked about the frontline employees create the value. And we know, I mean, I know from stories shared across the world about Ritz-Carlton uh, employees doing great things with their talents. And you know, I would love for you to share just a few examples of ways that employees, frontline employees, have used their talents to delight customers, something that would inspire us. Well, it's interesting. I, I, would, I will tell you this, too. I think before I tell you how some of the frontline employees have inspired customers, Ritz-Carlton, uh, we had wow stories. And this is quite common now in a number of businesses. But it was really, really important. The wow stories, whether it's in a wow story or whatever format a company uses, recognizing and rewarding people, more recognizing, recognizing people in front of their peers for actions that they have taken to delight a guest or to resolve a problem, does two things. One is, obviously, it's the recognition for the individual. But even more important, it tells every one of the 40,000 ladies and gentlemen around the world the actions that you recognize, the kind of actions that you want them to take. And it gives everybody, a, oh, I could do that. I can do. It, it, it just reinforces the empowerment that you're trying to give them to resolve guest issues on the spot. So really, really important. Now, the stories, to me, I, I happen to prefer the simple ones uh, because there's no doubt that the front desk employee who jumps on an airplane and flies to Singapore to return the briefcase to a guy who needs it for a meeting tomorrow, that's all very nice. That's wonderful. That's good. But it's the simple, simple stuff. And I'll give you some very simple. You know, employees who go up in an elevator with a guest. And, uh, you know, guest is, presses eighth floor and employee uh, presses nine. And when they get to the eighth, uh, uh, the guest gets out, and then the employee presses the down button because he put the guest first. And the guest says, you know, it's amazing. I get him with the employee. I'm, I'm going to the eighth. He, he's with me. He doesn't press the six, which is where he wants to go. He presses nine. So I get to my floor, and then he goes down to his. Wrote me a whole long Think about it. Another one is uh, Naples. couple comes down. They've picked up a couple of coffees uh, in paper cups to go sit outside and enjoy the early morning. And they're both sort of standing there looking around. And a gardener sees that they're looking for a seat. 
well, there's, you know, in the, in the morning, there's a lot of this moisture and dew and stuff like that. So he gets over and finds a couple of, couple of chairs, wipes them all down, wipes the table down, and invites them to sit. You don't expect that from the gardener. It, it's, it's getting that. Those are the stories that really excite me. Uh, obviously, there's a lot uh, that you can do in housekeeping as well. Because there's a, sometimes there's more interaction between the housekeeper and the employees, but it, it's interaction but between employees and guests in areas where you just do not expect uh, that kind of thing. Another one, uh, and this comes back to the, uh, the the conversation we had earlier about being prescriptive. Uh, I remember there's a story of a guy going to Sarasota and sitting in the bar, and he was in a he was a sort of old school rich guy. He was a guest. But he kind of knew the company a bit. And then a guy sits at the end of the bar and orders his beer. And the bartender heads to the uh, bar, gets the beer, flips the top, and puts the bottle down in front of him. And this Ritz guy calls the bartender over. or the, the, It's a frequent Ritz customer. You're not supposed to do that. You know, you're supposed to pour it in a glass. <laughs> and the bartender says, well, very simply, that's how he asked for it last night. <laughs> you know, so it's... <laughs> It's a nice little story because it talks about this whole idea that this guy didn't go through the routine that he was supposed to go through and and might have done it, you know, 10 years ago. But this is about outcomes. And you're smart enough to know this guy was here last night. He asked for in the bottle. He's going to get in the bottle tonight. Very simple, simple uh, uh, stories. But they, they abound and they're everywhere. And the thing actually behind this is also it's the unseen stuff, you know. It's it's the it's the people in the laundry who actually see there's a hole in a sheet and and throw it away, or throw it to you know they probably have a storage there where they can cut it up into rags and stuff like that. All that unseen stuff. Because think what happens if you go to a room and you pull back the covers and there's a hole in the sheet. Yes, it's only a hole in the sheet, but that is an indicator of care and attention for the rest of your stay. And so that's why in the luxury hotels, yes, and I'm going to say this, it's really important to surprise and delight guests. But you can only be successful doing that if the platform, if everything else has been done right. And that's really, really important because you can't focus just on the the light side because a guest who arrives at a hotel and has a, a bad arrival, room not ready, hole in the sheet, dirty cup it's going to take a lot of effort to get them to be surprised and delighted with their stay so really important that all of the fundamentals all of the platform stuff is done perfectly then from that platform that's where you can really shine and engage and create customers for life those were great examples of things that we can do that are simple to create that customer engagement from the employee engagement side. Hey, what did, what were you doing as the president of the organization? And, and I, my gut tells me you're making yourself very available to all frontline by visiting them and talking with them. But, you know, what kind of leadership abilities or leadership things did you do to make sure that those frontline employees stay connected to the huge mission that Ritz-Carlton has? You've got to you've got to walk the talk. I don't like that expression, but not behave differently personally than you're asking them to behave. So that is very very important. When I got to Ritz, 
I felt that too many of my executive team wanted to be in the audience and not on the stage. Uh, let me try and explain that. They they were behaving like they were they were the guests. <laughs> they traveled like they were the guests. They expected that sort of thing when they got to the hotels. I just felt they they they'd left the stage where they were supposed to be taking care of the guests and had joined the audience. Really important that you don't. Yes, you're entertaining in the hotels. Yes, you're doing that, but you've got to be in the employee dining room. You've got to be in the bowels. You've got to be in the maintenance. You've got to be down there, and you've got to be listening. Uh, you can't just come in, sweep in, have a fantastic dinner with a customer, and, and leave. So I think it's really important that even though you're you know, well-dressed in suit and tie and you're going to be meeting with really important people, fundamentally, at the end of the day, the work being done in that hotel is being done by probably relatively less well-educated people. Many of them probably have a challenge with English language or indeed the language would have come to you in. Many of them you know, are doing very uh, mundane, repetitive tasks. And it's so important that they do those repetitive tasks extremely well. It's so important that every one of the thousand sheets they're looking at coming out of the laundry uh, as it comes out, that there isn't a hole in it, there isn't a stain in it. It's hard, I think, sometimes to remind people as to how important that is, that the platform has to be right. I think there's a famous saying by one of the Harvard marketing guys that the smile on the face of the doorman is no replacement for a taxi at the curb. <laughs> in other words, right. I, I, I'm on a taxi. You know, It's, it's nice if you're right. smiling at me and telling me it's going to be 10 minutes, but I ordered it. I want the taxi. So you've, you know, you've got to have the taxi and then you can put the smile on the top. The smile, the smile is insufficient if your idea is to get to the airport to catch your flight. Yes, this maximizer is giving snaps to that because <laughs> <laughs> yeah. I feel that all the time. You know, the the difference between, you know, bare minimum or, or something that looks really flashy but doesn't have the result, you know, that we expect. Ah, oh, yes. <laughs> Yep. So, Simon, you've given us a wealth of things to chew on here about developing employee engagement and leadership that is engaging employees that translates into customer engagement. I want to know, where are you now? Tell us where you are in your not-so-retired years. <laughs> what are you doing? What are you up to these days? I don't have the interaction I used to have. I have to say that because once I left, uh, once I retired, I'm not visiting my hotels anymore. I say my, it's very possessive. <laughs> I'm not sitting down in the employee dining room uh, at, at lunch, chatting to the housekeeping. I, 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 I'm, I miss all that. And I don't, but what I don't miss is I don't have to do annual reviews for mm -hmm. <laughs> 10 people or take you four hours each. You know, I, I'd love to, I miss all that. But I, what I am doing is staying very, very close to the business. I'm mostly working pretty much 100% on um, large resort developments with hotel components. So whether it's uh, Costa Rica, where I, I primarily work on the Papagayo Peninsula uh, for the ownership there. We have Four Seasons. We have Andes. We're probably going to build a Ritz Cup. We will build a Ritz Reserve. Uh, we have our own, uh, we have a couple other hotels there. We've got tennis courts, golf courses, etc. So that's a big continuing. That's about a 15 year old development and injected 
uh, a completely rejected money, frankly, and repositioning about three years ago. And it's been working out extremely well. I also work on a very interesting problem, a project ground up uh, in uh, St. Lucia, where it's all about it's residential, hotel, restaurants, golf course, etc. And you know, that's really interesting about how do you, which hotels, which brands, uh, how many, how much residential, how much hotel, how, you know, and how do you create a, a uh, basically, you're creating a resort from scratch and if you look at the big resorts around uh, north america which would be more well known to to the listeners you know there are a lot of components in these in these resorts which have a residential have hotel have club members have golf that is uh and it's it's really interesting as to how you use not not only the physical land to deliver uh, a really great luxury experience but also then what do you put on the land that sort of brings it to life so uh, that's basically what I do. I, 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 I do some other work, but nothing as exciting as creating these uh, uh, wonderful luxury uh, resorts. Well, you're you're still being tapped for your, for all of your experience, expertise, wisdom, and your strengths, right? That's correct. Something that just came to mind that transformative work, like what you're describing doing in these islands and the Papagayo Peninsula of Costa Rica, you know, I think as a strengths guru, I may have thought, wow, I bet whoever's leading that or, or some of the people who are in the inner workings of that probably lead with lots of strategic thinking themes in their top five. And I definitely feel that you probably have some in your top 10. Uh, but, you know, you're leading from that influencing realm. Four of your top five are influencing. And that's powerful for us to realize that when we're thinking about Strengths Finder and how it helps us be successful, our strengths don't just play in that domain that they're in, but they can help us be visionary. They can help us get things done. It, it, we're not just, I guess, one trick pony type of leaders. Um, and you're a great example of that, Simon, that you're doing transformational work through that influencing domain. And getting a lot done, and it's and you're seeing the return on investment. It's so cool. I love strengths. I love getting to hear your strengths. I mean, like this is getting in the mind of a genius. It really does feel that way. Getting to talk to people like you and know their top five. Oh, uh, <laughs> I think so. Trying to understand what what my customers want and how I can how can I corral all the talents of uh, of the ladies and gentlemen to deliver. So it's uh, you know. I love strategy. I love marketing. I love all these other things. But you're, you're right. Obviously, I, my strengths tend to be, you know, more around experiences, and and I like having Maximizer on the top. To be honest, it uh, it kind of reminds me every day. Because not everybody gets up and says, "I've got to make things better," and, and I like to think that I I don't do it every day of the week. But I like to think up that at least half the days of the week. I wake up thinking how I can improve, not just me. I mean, improve whatever I'm working on. Right. I mean, you improve everything that you're a part of, the teams, the projects, right? You're, it, you've got that eye for improvement and taking things to the next level. Yeah, I, I'd be very upset if I ever thought that I, I led a team that did not improve what we were, what, what we were tasked with doing. That, that would be very upsetting. I ask every 
person that I interview on Obey Your Strengths one last question. And it's the question, it's the Obey Your Strengths question. And so I'm going to ask you, and I want you to think about it and give me your answer, but this podcast exists to help other people obey their strengths. And sometimes we take our strengths for granted. But if you could just pick one of your strengths that you've really honed and it's made all the difference in your career, which one is it and why? In some ways, I would probably choose significance. This idea that you actually want to make a difference. I should choose maximize it, but I, I see that's kind of like bread in. Um, it, it's, it's relatively simple. I think the much more complex one I want to be significant in people's careers. I want to have significant input into the livelihoods of the ladies and gentlemen by making right decisions that lead to um, lead to careers for them and improve their lives through that. I take great pride in the fact that when we go to more remote locations that our ladies and gentlemen hopefully are the best paid hopefully have the nicest houses, hopefully have meaningfully improved their quality of lives as a result of working for us. And I think that's really important that I and the leaders that work with me make smart decisions that continue to create that environment for them. You know, they've made a decision to come and work for us and give their lives for us and their livelihoods. And really important to me, it's, it's just as important that we try to deliver on our side of that contract. Significance, yeah, and it's, it's not, uh, you know, I don't think it's everybody. Uh, it is, in, in my case, I'm guided a little bit. I, my favorite quote is Lord Tennyson back in the 19th century, who, who basically, I'll paraphrase it, but his idea of good leadership was somebody who had self-knowledge self-reverence and self-control and uh, I think that's really really important I've probably gone off track here a little bit but this idea the word I like the most is self-reverence self-knowledge is all about well, this, is, this is a couple of hundred years ago so he was doing strength leadership there <laughs> self-knowledge right. know what you're good at but after that this idea of self-reverence is that you're comfortable with who you are or you like who you are you've, you've got to be comfortable with who you are that's a very important and I'm really comfortable in, in this role of trying to be significant to people with whom I work and not just for the company that I work for. Much more important to me is to be significant for people who reported to me and, and growing their careers, their livelihoods, whether they reported directly or indirectly or one of the many 40,000 people who would employ around the world. So being significant to them in a positive way resonates with me. Thank you, Simon. If you would like to learn more about Simon Cooper, you can find his blog and his website at simoncooperassociates.com. He's also a frequent speaker at the Ritz-Carlton Leadership Center. He focuses on service excellence and cultural transformation. This conversation has been a delight. Thank you so much, Simon. Very kind of you. Very much enjoyed it. Obey Your Strengths is produced by Geek Day Media in association with Game Day Media Enterprises. Executive produced by Lorenzo Gomez, John Garcia, and Michael Largent. To learn more about Kathy Kirsten, visit her website, kathykirsten.com. That's K-A-T-H-Y-K-E-R-S-T-E-N.com.